I wasn't paying attention to what you're talking about. I was thinking about green bean casserole and my mind wandered. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Welcome to episode 274 of the Design Details Podcast. Back in the studio again, I'm Brian Levin. And I'm Marshall Bach. Back in that studio. Your studio, the hot studio. (laughs) A little sweaty. (laughs) (laughs) It's a little warm in here. We have the windows closed because California is on fire. Yeah, and we have the fan down low because of, you know, noise. It gets warm in this room (laughs) with two boys and a little dog. Uh, But we got a good episode coming up. Hope you enjoyed uh, your Thanksgiving if you live in the United States. I guess a little context here is we're recording this a week before Thanksgiving, but we know ahead of time that this episode will air a week after Thanksgiving. We're time traveling, Brian. So we know that last week's Thanksgiving recorded now from the future is going to be tasty and California will hopefully not be on fire in two weeks. Trip to Fangalore. Yes. All right. Before we get into this episode, we want to thank our sponsor for making this episode possible. Our sponsor this week is a new one, DuckDuckGo. If you haven't heard of DuckDuckGo, it is a private search engine, a mobile app, browser extension that basically lets you search and use the internet without being tracked to oblivion. They block advertising trackers. They keep your search history private and they let you take control of your personal data. So I downloaded DuckDuckGo a week and a half ago in preparation for this ad read. I replaced my uh, Safari on mobile with DuckDuckGo. It is my default search engine on my phone and my computer. And I can say it is wonderful. I was so nervous about moving away from Google just because Google results are, you know, they're, they're great. That's what Google does well. But DuckDuckGo has it down, so their search is great. And knowing that every time I search and and click on results, those clicks and typings are not being tracked, they're not being sent to advertisers, it is peace of mind as I use my computers that I use every single day. So DuckDuckGo, it is a wonderful product. You should be using it. Grab the the iPhone app, it's great. You can skin your your entire search engine. You can add like custom themes and customize the way it interacts with you know, the results, it's really a wonderful product. So you should be using the search engine, you should be using the mobile app. But this this company, the more I've dug in is is just absolutely amazing. So, you know, it's all about privacy as you browse the internet, but they are so ethical and transparent in the way that they talk about the things that they build, the way they talk about their mission, uh, the way that they hire and the way that they basically release features into the world that are all about setting a new standard of trust online and empowering people like you and like me to take control of the information that we give to companies on the internet. If this is interesting to you, if that mission resonates, if you are tired of companies on the internet just soaking up your data and you want to help make the internet a better place, DuckDuckGo is hiring. They are hiring remote senior product designers. They want you to come make the internet a safer place, helping design new products, and of course, iterating on what already are amazing products, their search engine, their mobile app, and their browser extensions. This is an awesome opportunity, especially uh, if you are looking for a remote role, if you're looking to join a small but growing and certainly mature company to take a lead role in making the internet better. You can learn more by going to duckduckgo.com slash hiring. Again, they are looking uh, for remote positions for senior product designers to help make the internet a safer, more trustworthy, more ethical place. Uh, I've been using DuckDuckGo, and even if you're not looking for a a gig, 
you should be using it too. So go to duckduckgo.com, switch your, your default search engine, grab it on your iPhone, grab it on your Android phone, start taking control back. So thank you, DuckDuckGo. And if you're looking for a gig, that's duckduckgo.com slash hiring. All right. And with that, Marshall, let's dig into the episode. Got a little bit of follow-up for me or more for Kevin. Yeah. So <laughs> I mentioned that Kevin Gutowski had written a solution for my hide show layers uh, toggle and sketch that they that they ruined for me with with the numbering system and he wrote a nice little thing for me and told me that he was going to send it over and I was under the impression that he had never sent it over turns out he had replied to his own tweet immediately after that with a link to the github repository I think we called him out on the episode. There, we no, like, I absolutely <laughs> did. Yeah, I absolutely gave him a public shaming. And he tweeted at me like last Wednesday saying, dude, I sent it to you like right away. <laughs> I'm like what? Turns out he did do that. And I just wasn't paying attention. I probably should have just hit him up before the show to ask for it again. But anyways, sorry, Kevin. That's my bad. I appreciate it. And I've been using it and it's very good. So if you have the same issue that I have, which is wanting a keyboard shortcut for anything uh, other than command h for those menu items then yeah check it out i'll put it in the show notes and it's very useful i've been getting lots of mileage out of it thank you kevin and sorry for the public shaming in front of our two million listeners yeah my bad (laughs) (laughs) all right uh, any more follow-up i think that's it we're pretty light on follow-up this week we're pretty light on news too yeah i guess the one thing we wanted to talk about actually came out at the time of this recording so perhaps these things are tricky but uh we want to talk about the samsung one ui and i never thought i would get excited about samsung design or an android skin like being interested in either of those two things at this point in my life is an oddity but uh marshall over this link to Samsung One UI, which is a, a skin that they're releasing for like the Galaxy and, and maybe one other phone, a skin that sits atop Android Pie. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it, Marshall. Yeah. So the most interesting thing that they're doing with this, I find, is that they are heating. Obviously, they listened to the podcast and they heard me talking a few weeks ago about Fitz Law. Three weeks ago, they heard Marshall. <laughs> they learned about Fitz Law for the first time. And they fast followed with this, with this complete <laughs> operating system skin. Yeah, the One UI uses Fitz Law in such a way that the top portion of any given screen on, I think it's mostly just like the built-in apps like Messages and Calculator and stuff like that, but the, the top portion of the app is basically unused. All of the actions happen at the bottom of the screen or within the like the bottom half of the screen, give or take, which is kind of what I was railing about the other day um, and complaining about how my hands are small and big phones are big and my thumb don't reach. So I thought it was really interesting that they chose to essentially not use... Half the screen. Yeah, two-fifths of the screen and just put a big name of the app up there, up top. And when you scroll, it takes up that portion of the screen. But initially, the initial uh, launch state of any given app that has this pattern puts all of the stuff that you would want to tap which is like the stuff that's usually at the top of the screen, like the first most recent message, for example, within reach of your thumb. That's, I think, the most interesting thing to me is there's probably a lot of debate that happened of do we want to prioritize information density and and letting things be readable without having to scroll? Or could we assume that if you open the Messages app, you're probably going to one of the top couple of the last threads and let's put those at the bottom of the screen 
dead space at the top and then you know applying that same principle to all the other stock apps will have links to the show notes but you can see screenshots they do this for like the notes app they do it for settings they do it for messages i think those are the the main ones in the the alarm well i mean apple did this too right like the the large title nav bars in 11 definitely in 12 are basically performing the same function which is expanding the height of the nav bar and pushing down all of that top level content or the top most content so it's closer to be within range this is a an extreme version of that but it's basically the same intent which is you can't tap the top of the screen so why put stuff there and also if we can use that space to be more informational as to the tab that you're on or the app that you're in and as soon as you start scrolling that area becomes filled with those things it's just an initial dropped um of that information down to tap range tap distance yeah so i think it's interesting it also feels like one of those things that we wouldn't know how it feels unless we held it in our hands and had that experience of opening the messages app and seeing two conversations instead of this huge list it's like four or five but yeah these are big phones brian they're fucking giant (laughs) fair enough four conversations i watched the youtube video of someone giving a walkthrough of one ui and there was a couple other interesting things that stood out to me first off you can't imagine what it'd be like to use it. You're not running like a brain prototype and... No, I am. But like in day-to-day usage, would I find it more frustrating that I actually have less screen density on or UI density on apps that I use? Or would I find it useful to have the one-handed ergonomics? My guess is the latter. Some extra context here, actually. I, I got the 10s Max. Yeah. I have the big phone. To the maximum. To the max. And I use it with two hands more often because I'm usually sitting at my desk. I prefer not to use it when I'm walking around. So therefore, having like the one-handed ergonomics would be a, not as useful to me. There's a lot of interesting tweaks that you can do in settings for it. Like you mentioned the floating keyboard. Okay, yeah. So this is what I want to call it. So there's two things that they changed. So Android has a pattern of having a bottom bar that is global to the operating system that has the back button, home, and then usually app switcher. So one UI from Samsung, they have an option where you can basically remove that bar and instead opt to swipe up in that region. So swipe up in the bottom left corner would move you back. Swipe up in the middle, bottom would go home, but essentially freeing up that bottom UI space, getting rid of the black bar. I don't think I've seen this done on Android before, but I'm also not super intimate with the ecosystem. Is this the first time somebody's gotten rid of those, what used to be hardware controls, but now they're just this permanent bottom bar, right? Pi has a simplified version of this. They've kind of gone a little bit more towards iOS where there's still a back button, but the home button isn't a circle anymore. It's more of like a a drag handle and you can drag it from the bottom and go straight into your app switcher. You can also tap it to go home. It's like kind of a a weird in-between. It's not quite the old nav bar. It's not quite the iOS swipe up from the bottom thing. It's also strange that on Samsung, so on normal stock Android apps, that nav bar, the back button is on the left, like a normal human would expect it to be, right? It's a <laughs> a normal left to right language speaking. Yeah, exactly. LTR. So on Samsung, they put the back button on the right and they put the app switcher on the left. You can change it in settings, yeah, but by they... default, the back button is on the right, which seems crazy to me. But I wonder if that's also a Fitzlaw thing of like, it's closer to right-handed thumbs. I don't know. But it just always seems strange to me. Like, no, back is on the left. That's how, that's how it goes. Always, you, yeah. But at least you can change it. Yeah, right. And to your point about the swipe up from the bottom, I don't think anybody else has done this. Although when the iPhone 10 came out and 
the pattern for opening a control center move to the top instead of swiping up from the bottom because now swipe up from the bottom is home. There was a lot of people on Twitter saying, like, make it a regional thing so that I swipe up from the bottom right. And that's control center, swipe up from the bottom center, that's home, right? That would make a whole lot more sense for me. And I get into control center pretty regularly throughout the day. So having it not be a two-handed gesture or, you know, have to set it down to use one hand uh, would be really huge. So I wish that Apple would say, yeah, we'll make it a setting. We'll make it an opt-in thing. Like, by default, it's still top right. But if you want to choose regions at the bottom, like, you know, the right third is control center. Yes, please give that to me, please. I can't imagine Apple ever introducing a setting that changes a navigation pattern besides an accessibility control. This is typical Android, right? Is I'm looking at this screenshot where you can change the fucking primary navigation of the entire operating system. You can change the order of the buttons. You can't even change the default maps application on, on <laughs> iOS, let alone the way you interface with the phone's yeah, like, true. You know, core controls. Sensible defaults, Brian. Sensible defaults. But in this case, I was really, really wary when the iPhone X came out of the regioned swipe areas, particularly like would people get confused that the top right is for this thing, the top left and the middle is for something else and the bottom is for something else. Like, you know, I think this is what Android does have going for it is it lets, hopefully they provide sensible defaults, which I think the the sort of global navigation bar is a pretty good default, but letting people control that and like power users say, if you don't need the UI, you don't need the UI, we'll let you gesture your way around the phone. Get, yeah, give you another 48 pixels or whatever it is. Yeah. Or sorry, 48 DP. I cannot believe you just said pixels. I know, I know. <laughs> Mr. DP. Yeah, Apple is not used to this thing. But f for example, Android, in addition to all these things, also allows you to choose your default app. When you tap on a link to, say, a Maps application, it will pop up the default. But if you have any other ones installed, it will give you an option and say, open using this app just once or always. And if you say always, it will always open that type of link in that particular app, which is super useful. We'll get to the pop here in a second when we talk about the next thing that just boggled my mind when I watched this demo video of Samsung's One UI. You can detach the keyboard from the bottom of the screen and drag it anywhere else on the screen. Hmm. Has anyone else ever done that? Oh, no. What am I missing? The iPad? Uh-huh. With the split thing? Uh-huh. Can you drag it around? Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah, you can. Yeah, so there's a, a keyboard button on the bottom right, and if you tap and hold it, that becomes like the drag, the, the drag affordance. Okay, it makes sense for an iPad where you might be holding it in landscape mode, and your thumbs are on either side of a large display, right? I want to configure my thumbs where they go. Now we're talking about a phone display where you can detach the keyboard for some reason. Because we can, Brian. Yeah, but uh, help me understand, like, what, what would be a use case here? My mind immediately went to... Is this an accessibility thing? Have I missed some case where having a keyboard docked on the bottom makes it really hard to interact with something on the screen? Maybe. Yeah, couldn't come up with anything. So for our audio listeners, imagine you're composing a message in messages. They're all audio listeners, Brian. For the people not streaming into the uh, hidden security camera <laughs> installed in Marshall's office. Imagine you're composing a message. and the you're chat watching through my webcam? <laughs> <laughs> you might have the chat input docked above the keyboard, right? So as you type, the words go above your keyboard. In Samsung One UI's interface, you can undock the keyboard, which moves the chat input to the bottom of the screen and the keyboard is above it. So you might be literally covering the bottom of your screen as you're typing if you move the keyboard somewhere. Yeah, it's just a floating window and it's not even full width either. It's not full width. So are we both stumped on this? Maybe other people know more about 
where this would would be useful or practical? Usually my first thought when it comes to stuff like this is like there must be some sort of accessibility need that right, people right. have asked for that I'm just it's just not part of my day to day. Exactly. Yeah. Even knowing that I can't think of what it would be useful for. Cool. Well, if if you're listening <laughs> and you happen to know, please enlighten us. The last thing I wanted to talk about, one UI, is uh, just a small thing, but they have a built-in night mode. Yeah, man. I think this has to be coming to iOS. It's inevitable. In 13, right? Like, I I sure hope so. I mean, they've done it on Mac OS, so it has to come to iOS. I think they're laying the groundwork, especially with with these OLED displays. Like, the blacks are so just super black. Yeah, yeah. it seems like a lot of third-party apps are already building in dark mode. It's become kind of a, an accepted thing that if you put a lot of effort into your app, you're going to have an appearance setting with a dark mode and a light mode. YouTube has this. The thing that you're going to mention in For Your One Cool Thing has this as well. Apollo has this. <laughs> Sneak tea, come on. <laughs> yeah, spoil the plot. Tweetbot has this, right? Yeah. Twitter has this. Twitter even, has like the, it. Yeah, like the regular Twitter. Yeah, it's become so ubiquitous that I feel like when they do put this into the OS level settings, it'll, it'll just be like one line of code for everybody to write to like yeah. just hook it into their API and yep. hit the ground running. Well, I don't know how it works on on the Samsung One UI, but it looks like it's just first-party apps. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe there's APIs that plug into third-party apps for, for Android, but I think that would make sense for Apple. At least a place to start is first-party apps, phone, notes, reminders, that kind of stuff. Give it to me. I mean, Mojave yeah. does it, right? Like, yeah. It's yeah. got to be... News, music. Yep. It's coming. Although I've heard a lot of negativity around their implementation of dark mode so i'm not necessarily sure how good the dark mode would be yeah well i mean the complaint on mojave is like the kind of garish borders around everything that's the first thing i saw i was watching wwdc panels and they were talking about the dark mode and the presenter mentioned that they intentionally put that stroke around each window because in dark mode, you don't have the contrast of the shadows to let you know which app is in the foreground and kind of define where the app ends in the background, the desktop wallpaper begins, especially because they're doing this dynamic wallpaper that becomes dark in the dark and light in the light. So it made sense to me why they would make that decision. It just looks bad. Yeah, the logic follows. It's probably more accessible. It is probably easier subconsciously mm-hmm. if you have multiple windows on a display to figure out which one's focused. But aesthetically you're just frustrated i feel like that's the same thing with designers using light grays and small types like it looks nice but put this in front of the average human and it sucks to use right well maybe this doesn't though like maybe for the average user this is this is truly doing what it purports to do which is help with definition right and differentiation but i think strokes around things just generally feel antiquated to me like web 2.0 so 2014 (laughs) (laughs) also it flattens everything out in a way that feels so different from the light mode right where you have this very leveled you know it's a there's very much a z depth going on with shadows and the shadow i don't know if you ever paid attention to the the shadows on the selected window on mac gigantic it's fucking enormous huge if you were the designer you would be shocked at how big you were making the value too far yeah no this is ridiculous yeah dark mode will be a welcome change regardless so looks like samsung is going to beat beat apple to the punch on on a proper dark mode for a mobile operating system so well done yeah i'm excited about Hopefully this influencing both Apple and Google to be more thoughtful, especially with phones becoming so fucking huge, to like be more thoughtful about content placement, even if it means the initial state of the app is a little bit weird looking. Yeah, I think it's okay to take it further. And my, my short, short thumbs will thank them. 
<laughs> your little baby thumbs. <laughs> My little stubby thumbers. <laughs> yeah. All right, let's move on, Marshall. I want to talk about something that, that came up a couple weeks ago, have been sort of stewing on this for a while, and I'm, I'm torn. I, I'm not really sure how to think about this particular problem. Uh, and it's specifically about sign-up walls on websites that provide free content. And this came to mind when uh, I was doing research on Dribbble. I was signed out of Dribbble, and I scrolled to the bottom of some list of shots, and I clicked load more, and a pop-up appeared that said, in order to load more, you have to sign in. So I got to thinking, okay, why why would they want me to sign in? Why does Dribbble care if I'm signed in or not when I'm browsing? So obviously there's it costs them money to serve bandwidth and, and for people to load images for free over and over. Maybe they're trying to stop people from scripting and scraping the website. So there might be some technical reasons to prevent people from, from doing that. Okay. I kind of go with the Occam's razor here, which is they want me to sign up because they want their sign up numbers to go up. Mm-hmm. Perhaps that's a little Pretty bit cynical cynical as well. Uh-huh. So let's assume that that's true, which maybe is not assuming best intent, but we can say Dribble wants people to sign up. So they stop you from paginating content unless you're signed in. It's a fair assumption. I mean, metrics, right? Metrics, right? Yeah. Like they were acquired and presumably the acquiring party has an interest in seeing a return on that acquisition. Mm-hmm. So maybe not too cynical. All right. So my my question and, and thought here is, is this fair? Is this a good pattern? And specifically with free content, maybe this is too specific, but a site like Dribble, where this is where a lot of designers get jobs. This is where a lot of contractors receive most of their inbound. And a lot of the people that reach out and try and hire designers might not want to have a Dribble account, right? Imagine uh, a PM or a recruiter or a small business owner who wants a designer for their website goes to Dribble, is trying to look at someone's portfolio and all of a sudden they can't look at this designer's work because you have to have a Dribble account. So small business owners like, what the fuck? Why do I want a Dribble account? I just want to hire this person. So my thought was, is this harmful to individual designers? How do we weigh that with the trade-off of Dribble being a business that is also providing a service to those designers by letting them host images for free? There's some give and take here. So I wanted to see where you landed and perhaps there's more examples we could draw uh, of companies that do this. So I think that this makes sense in a lot of paid, like having a paid paywall, a paid paywall, <laughs> a paid wall. It makes sense. Like if you're the New York Times, for example, you have you have to pay your uh, journalists, you have to pay your writers and your editors and everything. I'm, I'm sure that your subscription goes towards cost of ink and paper too. They still make papers, right? <laughs> make what? Yeah. Newspapers? What the fuck is that? Yeah, I think if you are creating content and the only reason that people are going to your site is to read content from the people you already pay from your employees it makes sense to charge customers for the content that is paid for by your own company that's how you pay those employees but in this case dribble is only a small team and the content is made for free they have to host it like you were saying and everything but it's slightly different. So in the same way that I understand why New York Times would want to have a paywall, I kind of don't understand why Dribbble would want to have it for a sign up. Now, it's free. So like the only hit you're taking is maybe an email or something that you can probably unsubscribe from immediately. So and having to remember another password, right? Like, but other than that, the cost is essentially nothing. Do we lean on that too much? Do we lean on giving apps 
too much sway just by saying, well, it's free. Is that a good argument? So this is what I was getting at is like, I don't know if that's justifiable. Uh, yeah, like, right, yeah. It's true. It's not, it's not wrong, right? It is free. And they're asking for nothing other than your email address and for you to create a password. And even then, like you can opt out of any newsletter or anything and they legally can't send you anything. So it's like if you want to go to a bar or like to a club or something like that, and they're like, yeah, there's no tra- cover charge or anything, but you got to go over there and get in line to get a wristband, right? The wristband doesn't cost anything, but you have to sit and wait in line. It's like, ugh, okay, it doesn't cost me anything. It's a little bit of effort. It's not that big. I just have to stand here for a couple minutes till I get to the front of the line and I can go in, but I don't want to do that. And I shouldn't have to do that. And you're making me do something that isn't natural. So I-, I wonder if that's the kind of knee-jerk reaction that sounds like both of us have to like, oh, don't make me sign up for a thing. Like, Whereas if I have to pay $10 for New York Times, I'm like, yeah, 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 that makes sense. And I do. I pay them $10 a month so I can read their articles right? and do the crosswords. <laughs> <laughs> That's the main reason. I think it's an interesting metrics driver. I wonder if it's working. That's one of the things I'm, I'm curious about. Has their view rate gone down uh, uh, is is click through lower now because people just bounce it's like a leaky bucket that they didn't used to have speaking of buckets i'm keeping it uh, a dribble well theme appropriate yeah. yeah thank you i go in circles here on the one hand i think that internet consumers have become far too entitled to have everything for free and so for me yeah. a person who consumes 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 to land on a site and i try and load more content for free and they prompt me to sign up and i say how dare they that seems like a problem with the entitlement of the internet economy. We demand free. The same thing is true of uh, uh, Adblock. Sometimes you go to a page and it's like a huge interstitial, like, yo, you have Adblock on, turn it off, otherwise you can't yeah. see it. I'm like, Ugh, I say fuck how, those websites. How dare you? <laughs> but I turn it off. I mean, I'll t- if I want to read the article hard enough. like Incognito I, tab, dude. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the entitlement economy. But then Absolutely. there's also dribble. There's this weird circle here, right? Dribble only is Dribble because thousands and thousands of people have chosen voluntarily to upload their content to it, leave comments, like things, rebound things. That's the only reason Dribble exists is because people voluntarily give their, their time and effort. Right. Conversely, the only reason people give their time and effort is because Dribble exists and there's an audience there to be found. Right. So there's this great incentive cycle, right? Flywheel. Yeah. Flywheel. So I don't know where the responsibility or the fairness lands. I think fairness is the right word here for that that sign-up wall. Like, is it unfair to the creators who you are basically blocking people from viewing their work? Or is it unfair to the platform to assume that everything's free? Unless you make it to the front page, right? Yeah, this is why I was asking about, I wonder if it's working, if they're getting these signups. Because if it's not working, that means that the entire reason for the site existing, or the entire reason for people using the site becomes kind of moot. Because like, why would I upload stuff that a lot of people won't even be able to see, right? And and won't go through, jump through the hoops necessary to see. So I just won't upload there anymore. I'll just put it on Twitter. I'll put it on wherever. I'll create my own site and, and have stuff there and just tweet it. Uh, yeah, so I, I wonder if they're hurting that flywheel. But I'm wondering if this will if this will actually hurt the, the dribble economy and people will post less, in which case there's less to see, so the quality becomes lower, so people don't go there anymore, and it just kills the whole thing. I don't know. Yeah. But I think one of the interesting things about dribble that is no longer true, 
that was a huge driver of interest in it back in the day was that it was invite only. And it was a huge fucking deal. It was like, I got an invite. And And when you had invites, you were very, very selective. Oh, dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't want to be embarrassed by the person you Because your name got attached to the person that you drafted. And they only put out invites every once in a while. There'd be like a wave of like, oh, I got one or three or something like that. And since then the value of that currency has diminished as availability became more wide. And now it's not even a thing anymore. Anybody can be on Dribbble, which is partly why I have lost interest in it is because like it became less of a cure. I know this sounds super elitist. You're a Dribbble hipster. I know. It became more like any other social media platform that you get on. Anybody and their dog can get an account, which means that Frequency of high quality content went down. The volume increased, which meant that the kind of zeitgeist became more quickly cemented. It was less of a small set of individual creators and it became kind of this mob mentality, in my opinion. And, you know, prove me wrong, but it became more of a mob mentality where designers would start to gravitate toward we talked about this last week like people, people would start to gravitate towards this zeitgeist and everything was you know teal to purple gradients and rounded corners and drop shadows the point being they did this driver early on which was the invite thing that worked really well and now i feel like it's kind of become this other thing I feel like acquisitions fuck things up. And it's hard because... No. Brian, no. Well, I know so many people that work at Dribbble and like they're hiring well-known designers or people who have sort of clout, I guess, in in the industry. Like they're known quantities and they're hiring them to design Dribbble, which is amazing. That's awesome. But you know, those people demand salaries and Dribbble has to grow and Dribbble has to make money and there are just going to be all these levers that start to get pulled and we're going to notice them, but they're the same tricks that medium pulls or the same tricks that fucking every other medium actually is another great example here yeah, tell me about that have you ever read a medium article <laughs> no what's medium <laughs> uh, medium has just gotten incredibly aggressive about the sign-in overlay whenever you read an article they're very very aggressive about signing you in before you can read the blog that somebody has wrote, written for free actually this is a perfect parallel but you can close it right or do you have to sign in? i think you can close it see that's different right because the same thing with adblock, right? There are some sites that just, nope, you can never see this unless you turn off adblock. And once we've determined that adblock is off, then we'll show you the page. And there are other ones that are like, hey, you know, you're kind of fucking us. <laughs> like, this is how we make money. Please, maybe don't. But here's a close button if you feel like being a jerk. And sometimes just click that jerk button. <laughs> and I, I think there's a, a vast difference between those two things. So if Medium allows you to close it, that's one thing. But if they block it off entirely, that's a different thing. But it screams like they haven't figured out how to monetize properly. Yeah. Fucking join the club. That's the entire that's internet. That's the internet, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's why every fucking website you go to is read our newsletter, like our shit, tweet our shit, like is just so spammy. And it's like overlay on overlay on overlay, preventing you from getting to the free thing. And then we get back to the entitlement economy. Uh, yeah, we're going in circles here. I think apps hurt this a lot in that everyone expects apps to be free. And if you make a game, if you spend a year making a game by yourself and aren't getting paid, charging a dollar will create a riot, right? That thing better be free, which is why freemium is a thing and why loot boxes and in-app purchases is a thing. But basically, 
there's three ways you can get content now. And that is by watching an ad. That's the most common thing. By paying for a subscription or they give it to you for free, but it's limited. And if you want the better version or the faster version, you have to pay in-app purchases. Free asterisk. Freemium. Yeah. Which of those three options, I always gravitate towards just, I'll give you 10 bucks a month, whatever. Like, don't show me ads. I, I never want to watch ads, like, ever. Yeah. I think the the long road we're on and have probably started to approach is subscription fatigue, mm-hmm. where you have so many of these things that you, you don't really realize it as you go. A couple bucks here, a couple bucks yeah, here. Yeah. Like, the Patreon is going to exacerbate this. Uh, Twitch with subscriptions, YouTube gaming subscriptions, right? Like, all these little $1 here, $2 here. They're called YouTube memberships, but yeah, sure. <laughs> YouTube subs. Does that uh-huh. piss you off? <laughs> YouTube Prime subs. <laughs> but anyways, I wonder if we're also going down this other road where fuck, it's like $2 is not a big deal, but times 100 to read the, the wide variety of interesting things that there are to read on the internet becomes really cumbersome. And then you shrink back into this sort of bubble of like, here's the three things that I actually really, really care about. Is that good, bad? Does that fuck over creators? Is there enough? Are there enough niches to go around? I'm afraid to do the math and actually like add together all of the individual. Oh, yeah, it's just $10 things. Like I said that earlier, uh, it's just 10 bucks. bucks. But like I probably have like 10 or 15 of those things (laughs) every month, like between music and car payment. (laughs) Yeah, basically. Which sounds crazy, but I think when you think about it, isn't as big of a deal. You're paying a lot of creators to make work that you really get a lot of value out of. That's how I justify it, especially because like a lot of these things, I do kind of the math of it. Like it used to be that I would buy a couple albums a month from iTunes. Like, and those are like 12 bucks, 10 bucks, I forget what it was, for a new album. So I was spending like upwards of $20, $30 every month to listen to three albums. Now I can pay $10 to listen to Earthing, right? Mm-hmm. Anything that I've ever wanted to. Same thing is true of Hulu, same thing is true of HBO, Netflix, all that stuff. It's still justifiable to me. If I were to buy everything a la carte, it would be so much more expensive, which is how they get you with the subscription thing. Because like, if you do the math and you actually use the service, which presumably you do, you're getting way more value than you would have 10 years ago, right? Because sure. 10 years ago, you would have had to buy every single thing individually, which is not sustainable. And you'd have to limit yourself. So like I said, I, I would listen to three albums. Now there are, st- I get streams, which they're just now starting to count as, you know, towards like Billboard, but they're getting the usage that they want far more now than they were earlier. They're taking less money, but it opens up to a larger population. So they're probably actually making about the same or more even though they're charging less for each person i'm trying to figure out how this is like going to happen in the future because like those three methods can you think of a fourth subscriptions ads in-app purchases altruistic open source developers (laughs) seriously and those people get fucked the world is built on open source software and the people who maintain open source software except the huge projects usually do it because they initially wanted to scratch their own itch and it happened to scratch a lot of other people's itches but then they find themselves in an unmaintainable situation of people wanting to expand and add features and do all stuff to what was initially a very scope and small projects you have basically open source bloat which drives a lot of people away from building open source software you built this one thing to scratch your own itch but now every day you wake up to 100 notifications of people filing really small edge case bugs for their application that's doing something totally different they're basically expecting you to fix it for free 
within a day. Yeah. That's what the expectation is. That would be a fourth is an altruistic person who gives their time and, and sacrifices a little bit of themselves to give things away for free, which I don't think we can count on. I, you shouldn't count on that because... Well, there is a history of this, right? Like, oh, yeah. Like yeah. the MP3 format. Linux. Yeah, Linux. The seatbelt, Volvo developed the seatbelt and just gave it away. Anybody can use it. I, I read recently that the guy who invented the lithium-ion battery, which is the type of battery in everything, didn't get paid a cent for it. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. Yeah. He should be a trillionaire. Should be. Going back to your point, I, like these are the options that we're faced with. And I feel like for people that don't have a lot of disposable income, the options remaining to them just kind of suck. All right. Well, let's let's take it back and scope it just to this dribble to sign up walling free content made by non-employees. Is this a good pattern? Is this a good thing? Or is this a dangerous direction to be going uh, that feels detrimental to the platform? I don't know if I can answer that unless I know if it's working or not. Right. Like I'd have to see their numbers. Hedging, I see, Marshall. <laughs> <laughs> Never. It gives me a bit of a like a heebie-jeebie feeling, but if I do the math on paper, it's really a pretty low price to get a thing. The problem is it was free before. If you have a choice between something that is more locked down or more free, usually you want to go locked down first, whether that's a setting or a feature or something. Like You want to go with the more Iron Fist version of it first before you open it up, because if you start loose and let people have all the options, and later you tighten that up, you're going to have problems on your hands. This is like uh, human psychology 101, right? It feels worse to lose something than to not have gained something. Right. Yeah, exactly. Once you establish a status quo, any change towards the quote-unquote worse is immediately perceived as, as a nightmare. Right. So... Without direct knowledge, perhaps uh, some of our friends working at Dribble will listen to this and can weigh in. I highly doubt it, uh, but I too would be curious to know what the numbers look like if this works for them, if they've gotten feedback from from people who are sort of power users that use Dribble to basically run their business, or you know, I'm thinking of the Waynos of the world, like these huge agencies where Dribble is a huge source of inbound. If they're pissed, if this is a, a big frustration for them, or if the cost of signing up for this random free service is so low that it literally doesn't matter and it's a net benefit for Dribble. Here's the question is like, what's the value of having a signed in user? Is it so they can track behavior? Is it so they can get better metrics, like better analysis of user behavior? In which case, yeah, of course, having signed in users is always better. But for YouTube, for example, you can use the entire site without being signed in. But as soon as you start to do something that is necessary for an account, like, for example, liking, subscribing, doing stuff like that, like leaving a comment, like you have to attach your name to it. So, of course, that's when we allow you to sign in. But we don't put anything over and say, like, sorry, the, the, the like button is grayed out. We let you do the thing that you would have done. And only when you do something that isn't allowed signed out do we prompt you to sign in i can also counterpoint myself point counterpoint myself because what you just said made me think of what's the value of a sign up on dribble and i was originally arguing for designers who use dribble to get jobs and then you start to think what is the value in aggregate of people who are not dribble users that send hiring requests to designers versus signed in users like what's the the quality between those two groups and oh. it, it might be that forcing people to sign in weeds out yeah. spammers and people saying hey will you design my website for five dollars yeah perhaps this is a positive decrease in inbound volume for 
for creators. Yeah, it's like a it's an intentional spanner. If I was dribble, that's how I would explain it. Yes, you're weeding out and and reducing the volume, but you're increasing the quality of the volume that still remains. Wheat from the chaff, my friend. Mm-hmm. Seriously, that that makes sense. And again, we don't know anybody. We haven't talked to anybody about why they're doing this. Like this is all just speculation from like a product mindfulness standpoint. I think so, we just gave them a great point if they hadn't thought of that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure they thought of this. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> Marshall. Yes. I'm sweating buckets. <laughs> I know. It's pretty hot in here. Did you find something cool this week? I did. So the YouTube algorithm this week decided to uh, <laughs> present to me the, a, the kind and generous YouTube algorithm. <laughs> based on my viewing habits, it decided that it wanted to put the Tetris World Championship <laughs> in my recommended section. Well, I do watch a lot of video games on YouTube, and it wasn't completely out of character for... <laughs> oh, no, this is completely in character. <laughs> yeah. This is a shining uh, endorsement of the YouTube algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, obviously, I clicked on it, because I played Tetris. Like, my first game console was NES, and Tetris was, like, the system seller back in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was a wee lad. And uh, I played a lot of Tetris. I got that ding, 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 ding. I got that shit stuck in my head. It is, it is in my DNA now. And so I was like, yeah, I'll watch some Tetris. I know how this game works. And I was immediately confused. I was like, wait, how is this working? So I, another video that was suggested for me by the algorithm was an explanation of how the classic Tetris World Championship works. It's by the channel is a Game Scout. I'll put it in the show notes. Uh, but is a, a 20 minute video explaining how Tetris can be competitive and how the world championship works as far as like strategy for how you play Tetris, especially when you get into the higher levels, which all of these people are playing at. They're all playing at like super fast speed where it's like you have almost no time before the piece drops to the bottom before a third of a second, a third of a second at the highest level. Yeah. So um, you're making decisions incredibly fast and it makes it so fun to watch because like it's like watching, I don't know, maybe like a, a race car driver go at like 200 miles an hour. You're just like the track is winding and like how are you even anticipating all this stuff? Twitch speed that is impressive, like good and accurate twitch speed. It's a motor skill. Like it's impressive yeah. to watch people that have mastered that. Yeah, because you only get to see what the first, uh, like the one next piece is coming up and the piece drops within like two thirds of a second or a third of a second, something crazy like that. So you have to maintain your stack and also be earning Tetrises, like clearing four lines at once as often as possible to get the higher score to beat the person that you're playing against. It's a bracket system. But anyways, it's very, very cool to watch. It's very fun. And it's just kind of mind blowing. It's one of those things. This is true of any skill. Watching someone who's very good at it do it well is is fun, even if you yourself are not good at it or you don't understand all the nuance or all the things. But I think watching that video that I mentioned, the explanation video in the show notes will give you a better appreciation of not only does it look hard, but it really fucking is truly hard what these people are doing, like the frame rate that they're dealing with and the, and the speed and everything. Having that appreciation just makes it even more fun to watch, in my opinion. Here's my endorsement of the video, which Marshall is describing. At the beginning, I think I literally said, what the fuck like competitive tetris how and yep. by the end of the video i was watching them he was sort of highlighting some interesting plays that the players would make and i leapt forward in my seat and shouted oh my god <laughs> like i had gotten so into like he explained why this was interesting in such a way that i 
leapt forward in my seat in excitement watching yeah. these people play Tetris. Yeah, because the guy did like a spin tuck on level yeah. 19 or something like yeah. that, which yeah. sounds very esoteric and doesn't make any sense. <laughs> but watch the video and that will make sense. Yeah. So look in the show notes for a bunch of uh, YouTube links. And uh, the, the cool thing is that they post every single round of this bracket up on YouTube. So you can go through and you watch the last couple of years, I think, of the tournament. Plus, the other thing is like the people who are involved in it, it's very much a community, a small community. And it, it is competitive, but it's not like mean spirited. It's not malicious. It's just competitive. And they're friends afterwards and everybody kind of knows each other and everybody, I mean, they're all nerds. Like they're all, they're all people who have gotten good at playing Tetris. Of course they're nerds, but that means that they're like cool, normal people. And like, you kind of want to be friends with these people. And they seem, they seem like genuinely nice, fun people that enjoy a game. And they all come from very different walks of life, but they have this thing in common that they meet every year to, to play a game. Anyways, what's your cool thing, Brian? Cool. No, that was great. All right. This week's cool thing is... For me, Pocket Casts, my favorite podcast to listener, released version 7. Uh, so this is a software update cool thing. 7.0. 7.0. If you haven't used podcast, Pocket Casts to listen to podcasts, I think Pocket Casts is the best of all of the podcast listeners. I think, I think it's fantastic. Uh, but I always had some lingering things that annoyed me about the way the app worked or the way the navigation was structured or the way the controls worked. And Pocket Casts version 7 fixed basically all of them, as far as I can tell. Can you enumerate those for me, please? I will enumerate them. So it used to really drive me nuts that Pocket Cast pre-7.0, the home screen was not your subscriptions. So when you opened the app, it would be a line item to view the podcast you've subscribed to, but then they would have other items for like new, downloaded, in progress, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's filters, basically. Filters, which sort of made sense, but also is really annoying because the normal flow that I would go through is I want to listen to this podcast. You open the app and you go through these extra steps to find it. So 7.0, you open the app, you're in podcasts, and there is a search bar at the top that you can search and discover. And that is great. So uh, which leads me into the second thing that was very frustrating to use about Pocket Cast pre-7.0 was the discover feature. So it used to be that if you were just trying to find a podcast, uh, a new one, or you'd heard of one that you wanted to listen to, you would go through some sort of exploration flow, you'd search for it, you would find the profile for this podcast, but you couldn't play an episode. The only path that you could take as a user was to subscribe to the podcast. Uh. Then the subscription button would take like a second to go through this animation, then you could close it, then you could view the episodes, then you could download. They just did away with that behavior, so now you can view a podcast of which you are not a subscriber and listen to an individual episode. Just This is like a quality of life thing, which makes a lot of sense and, and feels really good as an end user to not have to subscribe to things. And it encourages discovery, right? I'm, I'm sure that's good oh, for yeah, totally. the podcasts themselves of like, you can taste test. They also made their, like they redid their bottom tab bar and discover is now part of the bottom tab bar versus like a sub navigation from the home screen, which, which makes a lot of sense. Well, uh, some stats... Forty percent of our listeners use Apple Podcasts, and the next one down at uh, almost twenty-one is Pocket Casts. So it's a, a substantial portion of our listener. Yeah, so it's huge. They did a couple other things. So if you listen to a podcast that has put out years and years and years of content, it is a nightmare to find a specific episode. Well, like a podcast that has like, I don't know, 274 episodes or something like that. It used to be a horrendous experience. You would literally scroll down the list, scanning titles, or if you happen to remember the number and you were lucky, you could go to that place. But usually you're just scanning titles. 
which was especially frustrating for podcasts where it was interviews and you're just scanning for like a person's name. You don't know the number. You're just like, I I'm looking for something that's interesting or like the specific name, right? So they changed it. So if you view a podcast, there's a search bar. You can just search the episodes. Like a sub search. There, Yeah, there's a search for an individual podcast. Thank God. <laughs> Anyways, I, I could just ramble on. I actually messaged uh, the CEO of the company that makes Pocket Cast, and I was just like, you nailed it. Everything is so great. I highly recommend downloading it. I highly recommend if you have an iPhone 10 or 10s turning on the new very dark mode, which is or extra dark, which makes your screen black if you're on an OLED display. It's beautiful. Uh, lots of quality of life improvements. Uh, I think it's one of the best designed apps and highly recommend I was looking at my stats. I've listened to Pocket Casts for 27 days and 14 hours. Wow. They did a um, a bit of a visual refresh too. Not not just structural, but yeah, the, yeah. the visual refresh is really nice. It feels more friendly now. It's beautiful. The UI is great. Yeah, it was. it's less stock now. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a little bit less of a stock feeling app, but it does feel friendlier, softer, more gentle. Like the icons are better now. One thing that they did as well, which I think is kind of a good thing to study from a design perspective is the way that they use white space and grouping. So the perfect view is if you just go to the settings, but picture in your mind, the iOS settings view, it's borders and washes and whites. And like, they try and make it so explicit. What is a group and what and, and dividing sub items in the groups with little bottom dividers. Pocket Cast, it's just white space. Then they just group things together nicely. So then this is uh, my favorite feature of Pocket Cast, which is you can have per podcast playback effects. And Pocket Cast has a few effects. One of them is playback speed, one of them is trim silence, and one of them is boost volume, which makes voices louder. So the way I use this is comedy and music podcasts. 1x speed, don't trim silence, don't boost voices doesn't make any sense talk show podcasts like this one or interviews things like that i usually do 1.4x speed 1.5x speed always trim silence always boost volume but i i have a couple podcasts where they'll the people talk fast so i'll drop them down to like 1.2x and just having that configuration per podcast lets you feel like pocket cast is way more personalized like this is my pocket or my podcast listener this isn't some generic just like skin on it like it feels like i've made it exactly how i want it to to behave i love that i love that i also love the you can skip the first number of seconds of a podcast so if you listen to a podcast and they always ramble for two minutes before they actually get into the show you can just skip that first two minutes and it's usually pretty consistent between podcasts and you can set it per one which is really nice i'm actually going to go back so i've i switched back to spotify very recently for my music so I've, I've gone away from first party on that one and now I think I might go away from first party into this other one you're converting me Brian so for anyone who's listened to what episode was that 258 seven, 257 was like the intro one. Oh yeah yeah so it's a slow transformation but we're moving Marshall to third party all right Marshall let's wrap up thank you so much for having me into your studio once again yeah yeah hope you enjoyed the, the pot stickers we made earlier <laughs> it's been a real pleasure <laughs> yeah. as always and of course, thank you so much to our newest and uh, one of my most favorite sponsors, DuckDuckGo. DuckDuckGo is helping you take back control of your information and your data online. It is a search engine, a mobile app, a set of Chrome extensions, or browser extensions rather, that helps you block advertising trackers. It keeps your search history private and it lets you take control of your personal data. It is a wonderful product, a wonderful company that is transparent and 
is entirely focused on making the internet a more trustworthy and more ethical place. And they want you to help do that with them. They are hiring remote product designers. They're hiring remote senior product designers. If that sounds interesting, learn more at duckduckgo.com slash hiring. That's duckduckgo.com slash hiring. And even if you're not looking for a job, go to duckduckgo.com and use that as your default search engine because it's the smart thing to do. So thank you so much to DuckDuckGo. Uh, We hope you'll check them out. And uh, if you're looking for a gig, this is a great opportunity. Thank you, DuckDuckGo. Thank you, listener, for listening to the show. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Let us know what you think, Uh, especially on the... I thought the conversation about sign-up paywalls was fun and there's probably perspectives we've missed so if you have one of those perspectives let us know we're on twitter at design details fm or you can dm us marshall and i both have access to that account so we we read it yeah and let us know what you think of the future of free content being available on the internet like those those three or four things that we mentioned earlier like where do you think the internet is going with this entitlement of people towards uh free content like is this sustainable and what do you think the future of that is i'm I'm curious to see what y'all think for sure thank you also to sarah and drew our producers and editors who make this podcast possible they had a break last week so that uh, everyone could enjoy thanksgiving but they're back uh, with this episode so thank you sarah and drew for doing what you do if you want to listen to more podcasts specifically for designers and developers we got your back they're on spec.fm that's our podcast network uh, specifically to help designers and developers level up. So that's at spec.fm. And if you've been enjoying the show, uh, we really appreciate you sharing the show with friends or leaving an iTunes review or just tweeting about the show. Those kinds of things make us feel warm and fuzzy inside. So uh, thank you if you've already done that. And if you have been getting value out of the show, uh, helping spread the word helps us grow and makes us a lot more fun. So thank you. Anything else, Marshall? Have a wonderful turkey day. This will be a week after the fact. Yeah, hope you had a wonderful turkey day. (laughs) There you go. Living in the past, thinking about the future is hard, right? I'm a time traveler. Aren't we all? One second at a time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. At (laughs) 1x speed in one direction. I'm a 1x unidirectional time traveler. (laughs) The least interesting kind. (laughs) All right. Uh, Well, that wraps up the episode. We'll see you next week. Yep. Have a good one, man. Bye. A players hire A players, Brian. Don't forget it. B players hire C players. You know my reference? Do you get that? Uh, That's a Steve Jobs quote, buddy. Is that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. The reference I made doesn't really apply to this thing. I just wanted to say A players hire A players. A designers draft A designers. B designers draft C designers. Mm -hmm. Don't be a B designer. (laughs) Don't be designer. Yeah, don't be a designer. It's a terrible line of work.